0: the people on opposite ends of the same issue debating who's right and who's wrong or who has the best arguments and the best structure. But in case competitions, it's more of an executive at Amazon says, hey, Richard, hey, Brendan, I'm I'm looking to open a new Amazon Go store. Should I open it in Berlin in Germany or should I open it in London in the UK? And then for three hours, students primarily, either at the bachelor level or the MBA level, they take a 20-page document that Amazon gives them They figure out the best solution. They make a financial statement they do a risk model assessment they create a recommendation and then at the end of the three hours they pitch their solution back to the executives of the company and the winners the best solution get wins the prize essentially forget frequently asked questions
1: common sense common knowledge or google
0: how about advice from a real genius
1: 95 percent of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed five percent go above and beyond they become very good at what they do but only point one percent
2: He's the founder of Master Talk. We're going to talk about uh, how to improve your communication. Brendan appears to focus on uh, ambitious executives and entrepreneurs to become top communicators in their industry. So I think this is going to be a great call. And just you know, to talk about the irony, I had some communication issues and connection issues at the beginning, but hopefully that's a, this is a harbinger of better things to come. So. Brendan, thank you for being here. Of course, Richard. The pleasure is absolutely mine. Thanks for having me. Brendan, thank you very much for being here. Please tell me a bit about your background and then we'll get into the current work you're doing now.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Richard. So for me, the background started when I was in college and university. I went to business school. And funny enough you would think that a communication expert studied in comms. I have a bachelor's degree in accounting, so I thought I was going to be a numbers guy. And then I get to business school, Richard, and I start competing in case competitions. Think of it like hackathons for the business world where I learned how to present competitively to different executives across a multitude of industries. In other words, it's like professional sports for nerds. So other guys my age are playing baseball or basketball. I was more into presentations. That's how I learned how to speak. But then as I got yeah. older, yeah, I started coaching students primarily on how to win these competitions and I accidentally, big word on accident Richard, developed a gift on teaching other people how to speak. And I started the YouTube channel Master Talk because I felt the information on communication wasn't democratized in a free and accessible way. So I started making videos and here we are today. Were you doing debates or how were you practicing and
2: improving your communication?
0: yeah for sure, Richard. So the big difference between debate and case competitions because cases are not well known that's why I use the the nerd analogy is in debate, you have a a contrarian topic between two people and you have to defend both sides of the argument so if you take something like abortion or climate change or political debates, it's always the people on opposite ends of the same issue debating who's right and who's wrong or who has the best arguments and the best structure. but in case competitions, it's more of. An executive at Amazon says, hey, Richard, hey, Brandon, I'm, I'm looking to open a new Amazon Go store. Should I open it in Berlin in Germany or should I open it in London in the UK? And then for three hours, students primarily, either at the bachelor's level or at the MBA level, they take a 20 page document that Amazon gives them. They figure out the best solution. They make a financial statement. They do a risk model assessment. They create a recommendation. And then at the end of the three hours, they pitch their solution back to the executives of the company and the winners, the best solution get, wins the prize, essentially. Yeah,
2: I've seen this on The Apprentice when they had years ago. It was kind of a similar, I know it was all reality TV junk, but uh, I'm sure there's some elements that were that were true, but it was similar. So, Is that accurate or is it wildly different from that show?
0: You got it. So, The Apprentice or, or shows like Shark Tank, it's more random business idea pitches. So, let's say you got a business, you go up to, to the judges and you try and raise capital, you try and pitch an idea. This is similar, but in this case, you're you're pitching to an existing company, and you're, you're mostly like a management consultant, like a guy who works at McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group, and that's more the role you play in a case competition setting, but it's fairly similar.
2: Okay, so the communication aspect of it is what you focused on to improve, or
0: what was your role in, in all of this in cases? You got it. So so the main reason I started doing these competitions, mm-hmm. yes, the main reason I started competing in these competitions was to get a job. So when I was, when I was 19 at the time, somebody told me that case competitions was a great way to, to network effectively with executives. So that's why I did them initially. And then when I started competing in them, I, I fell in love with them and I became an executive in the program who was running it. And then I realized there was a gap in the communication skill set between a lot of the students and who was actually winning the competitions. So I just took it upon myself to just say, oh, let me just coach all of the students in the program who need it so that they could win competition. So those are the two roles that I played there that led to, to what I do today. Okay. So what are some of the
2: key aspects that are missing from case presentations and from communication in general? amongst people and, you know, I guess also primarily from executives and CEOs.
0: Yeah, for sure, Richard. So for me, the big gap lies in consistency and structure. So a lot of us, if we want to learn a new skill set, whether it's in health, let's say we want to get more fit, we want to lose some weight, or we want to increase our businesses, we want to grow our careers. Those goals are often specific, practical, and tangible, but we don't have those same elements in communication because at the end of the day, what does being a great communicator even mean? Does it mean saying less ums and nas? Does it mean increasing our vocal tone projection. So for me, what's missing is the easy steps on how to actually practice this in a practical and structured way. So here's an example of this. Communication is like juggling 18 balls at the same time. So one of those balls is body language. One of those balls is storytelling. One of them is eye contact, facial expressions. And it could get really confusing really quickly. So for me, the question has been, what are the three easiest balls to juggle? And I'll throw the first one at you. The first one is the random word exercise. Pick a word like sofa, like couch, like mouse pad, and create random presentations out of thin air. And this serves two primary purposes. The first one is it helps us deal with uncertainty because life is filled with it. And the second use case is if you can make sense out of nonsense, you could make sense out of anything. So if you talk about avocados for 30 seconds in a coherent way, it's really easy for you to go back to your subject matter expertise and communicate those ideas to the world. And why is that? Very good follow-up question. The reason is because a lot of us are fearful whenever we're talking about things that we already know. So one example I can pull from your audience is a lot of them are PhDs, academics, People have a deep science and tech backgrounds. And usually, even if we have the competence in those areas, when we go to share those ideas to the world, I found having spoken to many of them, they have a lot of trouble taking that information and then disseminating it in a way that the average person can understand those ideas. And they have a lot of anxiety around that from, from the years that I've, I've been in this. So what the random word exercise does is it follows my philosophy that if we do the harder thing in practice, the real world becomes easier. So if we go back to the random word, you take a word like chair, it has nothing to do with our subject matter expertise. So we can figure out how to be coherent and create a presentation out of a completely random word. When we go back to our subject matter expertise, it becomes easier because we often find ourselves iterating the same subject matter expertise over and over and over again. So it becomes much more easier to to disseminate those ideas.
2: Before we continue, the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What about the communication from the initial person that's teaching it or interviewing about it? Some are really good communicators, some are terrible. How does that end up in the cascade going forward of how the information will be disseminated or not to other people.
0: Right, so that would be a different tip for that. So so the way that we disseminate information, here, here's the, a, a simple framework that I use. For me, it always starts with target, engage, evolve. So target just means we begin by asking ourselves, what is the key outcome and idea that I want from this communication channel? So one example, let's say if we're a scientific-based CEO, we have a lot of deep tech, and we want to raise capital, that's the key outcome. Then the next piece is to engage our, the key decision makers in the audience to figure out what matters to them and what they actually understand about the subject matter. So an example that I could give is, let's say, I want to present a cupcake recipe to a group of people, and my key idea, what I want them to do at the end of the presentation is to actually try the recipe. But if I spend so much time just talking about the information, okay, guys... So there's two cups of flour, one cup of sugar, you do this, and it takes 45 minutes, and I just focus on the bland surface level information. When I go back and engage that audience a week later, Richard, and I say who actually tried the cupcake recipe, everyone goes, oh, I didn't try it, I didn't have enough time, Uh, this recipe is too complicated. Uh, I didn't really know how to follow the ingredients. I, I didn't really find the resources to get this done. So this feedback changes the same information that I change and make modifications to. So then in the next time I give that presentation, I would say something like, Hey, this recipe is really easy to use. It only takes 10 minutes. Here's why. I'll modify ingredients in the recipe to make it easier for people to implement, and I'll make it as simple as pie. So then people actually implement those ideas. And that goes to the last part of the framework, which is evolve over time with the same ideas that we find ourselves communicating. They evolve over time as we keep talking to our audience and make those ideas better. And one question that people can use to speed this up is just go to the people that you want to serve and just ask them if you were to communicate my own ideas back to me? How would you explain them and why? And that gives you a lot of insights on how people are receiving your ideas. Well, what about a
2: checklist for good communication? You know, includes maybe live demonstration, engagement devices, repetition, post, talk, follow up, physical items, etc. Do you have
0: that or do you employ that or what, what do you do? Yeah, fascinating question. So for me around checklists, I like the idea where you can put a couple of things together and say, hey, make sure I don't forget this, I don't forget this, which is a great add-on. And and if that resonates with people in the audience, definitely implement that. My approach is more about building the fundamentals. So let's say we do the random word exercise a hundred times as an example. What this does is it improves our confidence overall for the rest of our life In a, from a communication lens. I'll give you another tip, which is the question drill. So the question drill just means A lot of us, when we're raising capital, when we're getting asked questions about a research or dissertation defenses, a lot of those situations, we get bombarded with questions, but some of those questions we don't necessarily have the answer to. So one way in being proactive in managing those questions is by making a list of all of them and answering them one one a day, every day. So just do this five minutes a day. And if you do this for a year, you'll have answered 365 questions about your industry and the ideas that you want to defend back into the world. That's just another example of how you build the fundamentals. That's more the approach I like to take.
2: Okay. So are you coaching executives right now or who is your audience and what kind of methodology?
0: Yeah, for sure, Richard. So so for me, you know, coaching is just the difference between hiring a personal trainer and going to the gym. So my philosophy and my mission is I believe, you know, the next world changer, the next Oprah Winfrey, the next Elon Musk is probably a seven year old girl who can't afford a communication coach. So for me it's a responsibility to share this information for free. So the, the tips don't really change. So what changes is just the implementation. So whether that person is the CEO of a, of a health tech company, whether that person is getting started in their corporate careers, or whether they're a coach looking to grow their business, for them, the idea is how do you implement these ideas at scale and focus on the implementation. So for them, it's more about saying, well, if you hire a coach, now I'm going to force you to do 100 random word exercise in two weeks so you can speed up your progress. So that's the key difference between both. And absolutely, I've been very fortunate in my career to have worked with a lot of these incredible people. Right.
2: But what does the program look like? What are some of the elements
0: of it? So the program that we, we coach clients on is called Communication Accelerator. So it focuses on three key areas of communication. The first area is presentation mastery. The second one is leadership mastery. And the third one is relationship building mastery. So presentation mastery just means a lot of the people that we coach, the mistakes, they make a lot of bisna- mistakes with their calm. So they don't smile enough. Their vocal tones are too monotone. Their pacing is too quick. They say a lot of ums and ahs. So the first four weeks is really focused on fixing all of the objective core pieces of communication. The second piece is leadership mastery, which largely entails throwing a bunch of questions at them, like the question drill, so that they're more calm and convicted in the ideas that they share in a boardroom or an investor calls. And the other piece to leadership mastery is how they deliver feedback to the people that they work for or with in a boardroom setting or in a work setting. So they have the confidence that they need to succeed and they're inspired to work there every day. And then the third piece is relationship building. How do you make small talk in a way that allows you to build better relationships with people and drive better outcomes? So that's what we do. Yeah.
2: It seems like most of the CEOs I've heard out there are just cardboard cutouts spouting platitudes. They have media training, but they don't really say anything. It's just empty garbage speak. So how do you train people to actually communicate where they're a human being instead of just this
0: plastic artificial thing that, again, just says platitudes and and nothing of consequence? For, for sure, Richard. So, so there's a couple layers that, that I would challenge that idea on. So the first one is the reason why a lot of those CEOs speak that way. They're primarily CEOs of publicly traded companies. And because they're really tight in the way that they have to convey their ideas, they're almost forced to go into what you just correctly referred to as media train, which is not what I do. And they have to go into a situation and they have to pretty much defend themselves and, and speak in a placated way or else it'll affect the stock price of their company. So I understand that their point of view on this. One example of that Recently, frankly, he's the CEO of TikTok, right? So a lot of he's testifying in Congress right now and he's he got media trained clearly, and he just doesn't really have a choice because everyone's after him. So that's one side of it. The other side, which I think is more fascinating, where I specialize in is especially for CEOs in tech and healthcare, which is where I primarily work in in the CEO space, is how do we develop our founder point of view? So founder point of view means whenever we're raising capital, whenever we're convincing employees or trying to get grants. Those are the types of environments where we're actually being asked our opinions. We, are, The investor, the stakeholder actually wants to know the depthness of our knowledge to see if this is a company that they want to support and help. So in those situations, what I really train the person to think about is twofold. One is from an objective perspective, one of the things that just won't fly. Like if you're saying ums and ahs doesn't matter what CEO you are. It doesn't matter what position you are. just got to get rid of those ums and ahs. I don't see situation how that helps you. But then the other piece is about saying, how deeply are you or and thoughtfully are you answering the questions that different stakeholders are asking you? So at the beginning, when the CEO tackles this because they're nervous and anxious, or they might've just started their companies, or they might not have been asked questions around their expertise as often as let's say a research lab they were in, they get offhanded. They go, oh my God, I didn't really consider that question. So they answer at a surface level to try and get out of the room quickly. But then what we do is we retake those same questions and go, let's take a break here. Let's take off the pressure and just say, hey, if you had 30 minutes to answer this question better, how or 15 minutes, how would you answer it better? And just improve the quality of those answers over time so it's not placated. Okay. So
2: what would be an example where CEO need the right training to speak to their employees effectively and to... You know, is this like a monthly meeting, an all-hands meeting that's once a year? How do you help these CEOs to communicate better? What's the goal for the organization to be more aligned with the CEO to, to see them as a person instead of just this unapproachable entity? I mean,
0: what what are the goals here? For sure, for sure, Richard. So, so the question exercise remains the same, but to your point, the result is interpreted differently. So I'll give you a few examples that stand out to me. The first one is when we think about the CEO of the business There's two parts that come to mind where that drives a direct ROI for that person in the business that they're building. So the first one is, of course, on a sales call. So when they go to do a B2B transaction or a B2C transaction, either directly to the customer or to enterprise when they're doing those types of sales engagements, if they're not properly trained on the questions, they just don't come off really intelligently in the sales process. So from the end buyer perspective, they go, well, if you don't know the answer to 50% of my questions, why should I give you money? So they're giving up revenue and they're leaving money on the table. That's probably the short term risk for not working on this on these ideas. The second use case is raising capital. This my expertise primarily is, is very niche in that area, so it's, it's a tech company looking to raise venture capital. That's where I spend a lot of my time in. So it's the same thing. So if the venture capitalist is asking that CEO who's trying to raise a series A, a series B, or a seed round and ask them fundamental questions about the vision of their business and the founder sounds clueless, there's no way those venture capitalists are going to buy into their product. and Or the chances of that happening, rather, I think more empirically, just goes down a lot. Because they just go, well, if this person doesn't know what they're talking about, there's 10 other companies with the same idea. I'd rather just fund somebody who's giving me better answers and has a clear direction to where the business is going. And then the third piece, which is more medium to long-term, but it's something CEOs should start thinking about, Richard, which is how do you convey the ideas of your company and where it's going when you're answering questions from your employees so they have confidence and conviction in your, your mission. A good example of this in the early days of Google was TGIFs. Where during the Friday meetings, employees at Google would ask the founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, hey, where's the future going? These are my questions. If you can't answer those questions properly, the best people in your company probably won't stay for the long run. So those are the three main use cases I see.
2: Uh, What about questions in the venture capital space that uh, will blow someone out of the water if they're
0: not prepared? What are some examples? I love that question. So, a couple of ways. I would say the the most dangerous ones, so to speak, are not really templatey questions like X and Y. Obviously, there's some surface level ones that we can talk about that are the obvious. You know, what's your attraction? What progress have you seen? So, if you're in the healthcare space, do you have FDA approval yet? What's the timeline on that? Where's the feasibility, the commercial ability of your product? What are the proof points there? One example, these are just the obvious ones that we all know the competitor scape. What, what research have you done, your competition? And if people, if you don't, sound like you've done enough research, then the person definitely will buy into you. One, one simple litmus test here is if I can spend, as a venture capitalist, if I spend, let's say, 10 minutes looking up research on your company and ask you about it, and you don't know what I'm talking about, that's a huge red flag. Because if I'm spending 10 minutes and you're spending 15 hours a day in the business or 14 hours a day in the business, I'm really concerned about you running that business. So that's one other piece that I see as well. And the third one is really around the question around vision. Where do you see the business going in the next five, 10-15 years but not just the business but the market as a whole. I'll give you a simple example, you know Steve Jobs I think one of his contrarian ideas that that made, that he was right on amongst many was the idea that every single home was going to have a personal computer, which is an idea not a lot of people believed in and then he had good arguments as to why that was. But the th- those are the main three that I would say, but I think by far the hardest questions to answer venture capitalists are often very specific follow-up and nuanced questions around their subject matter expertise, which of course I can't comment on because I'm not a SME in every single industry. But a good way to overcome this is a strategy I teach called Find the Ally, So fan, the ally ally means, I'll give you a a simple analogy here. Let's say you're trying to raise fintech capital. So what you want to do before you go straight to the investors, because it's a pretty small investing community, you want to go to a fintech expert that is a friend of yours, so that you can make all the mistakes in front of them. They'll ask you super nuanced questions about the industry, and they'll help you out. So that way, when you're perfect or just as good enough, when you go to the investors, you'll be solid. So that's a strategy that people listening can follow. I haven't done this, but you know, when you're in front of investors, are is it
2: sometimes adversarial from the start? Are they helpful? Do some investors, I guess, depending on their personality, they they deliberately try to create a high-pressure environment? Like, what what do CEOs walk in, or sorry, people that are looking for venture capital? What do they walk into? What are the different
0: flavors of scenario they may encounter? For sure, Richard, and of course, as you probably know yourself, the the answer is fairly varied. So there, there's some venture capitalists who are who are very, who's very who are honestly very nice and empathetic and they, they aren't as, as aggressive. but there's other types of VCs, especially when you get to the partner meetings and the final rounds, that will be much more aggressive with you. So So the, the variance will range, but I think the advice, which, which is going to be the principle here to simplify things quite about, is always assume the worst case scenario always assume that you're going to get the hardest person in the room. So the the way that I teach the question drill is I put my CEOs through hell. And the reason I put them through hell is because I want them to struggle. I want them to suffer when they're being coached by me because I know that when they go into the real world, it doesn't matter who's in front of them, they'll probably easy, be easier than me or some version of me. So that's the principle that I always like. It's kind of like the whole idea of, should we be informal or be professional when we're in front of somebody? And the answer is always default professional. And if you feel that they're they're informal, you can slowly bring yourself down to an informal level, but the opposite almost for sure doesn't work. Uh, the other piece as well that I think is helpful is to create an investor mind map. So based on the business that you're in, the company you're building, see the different types of investors, that they've put money into, and then from those companies, see who the founders are. This is really easy if you're like in a Y combinator, but if you're not in an accelerator like that, that's also totally fine. Then you just have conversations with those CEOs, and you have a pretty good idea on the energy of the investor before you even walk into the room. That's a good hack that people can use as well.
2: Um, after a presentation, should there be follow up, and what follow up works versus doesn't? What 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 kind of follow up um creates like the person's needy? Let's say versus not needy, but still we'll get them the the money, or give, gives the highest likelihood that they'll get money.
0: Yeah, for sure, Richard. I'll be honest; I'm not I'm not the number one expert in the world on follow up. But what I would say is, what are some of the psychological tendencies that we want to exploit and leverage to to maximize the odds of raising, especially in this economic environment with interest rates going up. And a lot of, a lot of uh, VC money starting to dry up just a little bit. That's what I'm hearing anyways as, as of this recording today. So what I'll say is that what's the number one reason why venture capitalists invest in companies? And a lot of people think it's team or product or market or vision. And all of this is not true. The number one reason why venture capitalists invest in a startup by far is FOMO, which stands for the fear of missing out. Every successful VC has a missed bag, has a missed startup that was in front of them in their careers, that was a unicorn that they missed out on. And what we need to do as startups and as companies is we need to convince the venture capitalists that we are the person that they're going to miss out on. So the messaging that I encourage my clients and the CEOs that that listen to my message really reflect on is you don't need to be arrogant. You don't, You don't need to be condescending. But you really need to give the illusion, the impression that you're a rocket ship taking off into the sky that is going to take off into the sky with or without their money. I think that's much more important than the follow up. It's really making sure that in that meeting, you're really showing up. You're saying, hey, look, I'm talking to 15 other companies. And not companies, but investing parties, different VCs. And you shouldn't create that attachment. Oh my God, this is the right person that's going to give me money. It's more about always leverage it from a position of strength. And the only way to do that, frankly... Is to maximize your top of funnel. Make sure that you're in conversations with as many venture capitalists as possible so that you get as many term sheets as possible. So term sheets, for those who are listening, just means like a, like they're they're going to give you money and you're just negotiating the terms of that agreement, what the cap is, what the safe is. And the key is you want to maximize the number of term sheets that you get from that from shopping around so that you you get the best valuation for the company and you maximize your odds of raising the money.
2: What if um you know you do a presentation and someone says, Who else are you talking to?
0: What's their feedback then? For sure, for sure, Richard. So once again, I won't give you the perfect answer today. There's different ways of approaching that question. Man, you're asking me some hard ones today. I would say one of the ways of approaching that question is you can just tell them like some of the different I think it's fine personally. And though people could debate me on this, I'm always open to 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 different ideas and thoughts. But i would say one one way of approaching it is if you do have term sheets from other venture capital firms i don't think it's wrong to mention that because it does increase the level of leverage you just do it in a way that's subtle to your point you wait for the question to come up but to be honest in terms of downsides i don't think there's a downside in saying what who else you're talking to just just pay attention to the tone that you're using so if if you're speaking like this oh yeah, I'm in talks with such and such and such, and you're using that tone, you don't really sound like a professional CEO. So instead, what you want to do is say, you know, we're currently in discussions with Sequoia Andreessen Horowitz and Kostla Ventures, like you do it in a very, and many others, that we're, we're tackling. So I think an easy way of framing that, you don't have to list everybody. You can just list two or three out of the 15 that you're talking to, and you just save many more. That's how I would tackle it, though I'm always open to, to better ways of approaching that question. Is it useful
2: when you're going to approach you know one of the higher level ones, like you just mentioned, Andreessen Horowitz, et cetera? Mm. Um, well, well, I guess first of all, I would guess you don't recommend starting out with them unless they they solicit you or there's an opportunity and you just have to take it. How do people actively practice on Let's say VCs, they don't care about. I know it's a harsh thing, but how do they practice in a safe way so that they don't get their, you know, get killed when they go in front of like a
0: really high stakes meeting uh, with with VCs? Sure. So let me start the first point for the audience just as an educational point. Why, why is Richard asking me that question? The reason is because if you mess up in a high stakes investing meeting, it's going to show like all the firms will know about it. That's why that's why I was gunned down on my CEOs to take this me- these meetings really seriously. Because if they mess up in front of one VC, to your point, they mess up in front of Andreessen. Well, Sequoia is going to know about it. Benchmark is going to know about it. Everyone else is going to know about it. So it's important for you to ace. So here's a good way of thinking about this. Start for the smallest group possible and expand over time. So let's go through the different stages of a company. So this is the stage that I call the pre-accelerator. So you just started it, you incubated the idea, maybe you've done a lot of research on it, but you haven't raised any capital and you haven't been written a check from like an accelerator, like a Techstars or a Y Combinator type environment. So at that stage of the company, my advice is never, never to your point to go straight to Andreessen, it doesn't matter. You need to first bulletproof your idea, your deck, and your structure. So that would be practicing with a few key ideas. If you don't have any money in your bank account, then it would be you know friends, colleagues, people that you're approaching, not from an investor interest or an investing interest, but more of an amicable interest. To say, let's say I was approaching you, it'd be like, hey, Richard, I just want your insights on this new idea I'm building. So I'm not looking for investing capital. I just want your ideas. So that's where I would start the conversation is it starts in an informal way. And then what we do and if you have a little bit of money in your bank how yeah, coaching just speeds that up for you cuz it's external and your you're in a bubble. So you, your the feedback or the bad criticism you would get from a coach just doesn't get communicated to the external. Well, that's the other option. So it depends if you have some capital to invest in that or not. But I think the idea is the same. You want to try your best. No, Nothing's ever going to be perfect because in the early stages of a startup, ideas, your product, everything will, you, you haven't hit product market fit. So, So your ideas and everything that you're developing will evolve over time and that's okay. But you want to try and get 70 to 80% of that done before you jump into an accelerator, as much as possible. So then once I call this bulletproofing a deck, and then after that, what happens, let's take like the most common scenario I've seen. That is the, I think that opt, that is the game theory optimal way of playing this. So 80%, you bulletproof the deck. Then once you're ready and everything makes sense, and you know, this is something you want to build for the next five to 10 years. That's when you start investing for either in grants, in accelerators, or in both. So then your ideal scenario, best case scenarios, you get into something like a Y Combinator. So then you get into something like a Y Combinator. And at this point, you've already done, this is a mistake a lot of founders make, in my opinion, Richard is they don't do the pitch prep work prior to getting the admission in the accelerator. So now they're rushing for time to get to demo day. So demo day, for those who are listening, just means the final presentation where you have a bunch of investors who are watching all of these startups and are deciding who to have meetings with. So what you want to do is you want to do 80% of that work or at least 60% of that work prior to starting in the incubator. Then when you get into that incubator, you expand your circle again so that means you start to have discussions with the people in that incubator that are still safe that will help you level up your ideas anymore but since you've done a lot of the prep work you're also impressing them and then you get to the final circle which is when you get to a demo day that's like the typical scenario that i've coached on in the life cycle then at this point everyone's there andre since there are sequoias there everyone's in the same room and then you pretty much just target the ones that are really interested in the business and the startup that you're building.
2: What happens when you get your term sheet and you pick a VC and you start re- re- working with them? Is there additional training required so that the relationship doesn't go sour? And
0: how, how important is the communication? I would guess after that you get the money is even more important. So the answer, Richard, will really depend on how much leverage you have as a starter. because I want to be empathetic across the board. So if you're like a top 1% talent, like top 1% startup, so I'll give you an example. Stripe's co-founders, right? Patrick Collison, John Collison, that's an example. The Airbnb founding team, right? Brian Chesky, Nathan Blakarczyk, Joe Gebbia. So, so those people had a lot more leeway into who Facebook's founders, right? Meta, right? Zuckerberg and, and his exec team. At the time, anyways. So when they were raising their series A, their seed round, a lot of them had a ton of leverage because at that point, a lot of the VCs wanted to give them money. So when you're in that situation, the the game is really about the pre-vetting where you're really vetting the investors that you're, you're getting money from not just from a money perspective and a specific term sheet valuation perspective but who has the right expertise to actually help increase the odds of my startup being successful so that's really based on reputation that and and the best vcs know this that the best founders will only work with the best venture capitalists one specific example that i can give is is david Sachs from graph ventures right like if you want to be a SaaS business chances are you probably want David Sass to give you money because he's had many successful exits in SAS and he pretty much just invests in SAS companies. So that's one example. So of course, if you have a ton of leverage, you just handpick the investors that you want. You know, famously, I don't, I don't know if the story is one hundred percent true, but Google's founders told the story once in like the late nineties. They wanted somebody from Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia, but they never do deals together. And the founders basically forced both of them to do a deal into Google, to, so that Larry and Sergey could get those two specific people on their board. So, so that's the leverage. Obviously, let's go more to the average case, which is ch- you might not have the same level of leverage as those top one percent startups. So, in those cases, your question really comes into play, which is, okay, Brendan, I have three term sheets, and I need I need to raise money, or else I'm going to run out. So, I'm going to I have to pick one of them. I have no choice at this point. And how do I continue that relationship? There's a couple of different points in terms of whether the training is necessary or not. Really depends on the founder. So I'll give you an example. Uh, One specific archetype that I think the training would be relevant is if you're a scientific-based founder, and you're really bad at sales. So, So one example of that is you have a lot of deep tech. You're able to get to product market fit, but you're having trouble distributing the product and getting sales out of the door. That's where I think training is more relevant. But other than that, if you're not that introverted, if you're good at speaking at that point, I think you'll be fine. But I think the key is really managing expectations with the investor, managing them before you get the check, but then after you get the check, really understanding the means of communication and what are the best practices that the VC does with their best portfolio companies and just asking them questions around that. But I think in general, it should go smoothly. Does proper training have any spillover
2: effects into other aspects of how they run their business and- even their personal lives, have you noticed any of that, or gotten commentary from people you trained that they were able to apply
0: those skills in different ways or unexpected ways? Great question, Richard. In my personal opinion, absolutely. So what I've found is communication becomes a multiplier effect. So I'll give you an example of that. Let's say we take, we go back to that basic drill that I taught earlier around the random word exercise. Right, you pick a random word like phone or mouse or home. And you create random presentations out of thin air. So when we take that presentation on a surface level, we might think, oh, this just helps me improve when I'm sharing ideas in a presentation. But that's not necessarily true. The random word exercise has multiple purposes. One is that the second one is also making better small talk when you're at a cocktail, when you're at a dinner, when you're meeting key investors, just doing small talk with them. A lot of people who are introverted and shy are not that great at small talk. But if you do the random word exercise a lot, you, you have a strong ability that you develop. You build a muscle in thinking really quickly so you can navigate the topic really well. But it also serves a, a very interesting purpose, actually, that I never actually thought until a client of mine told me about it, Richard, which is it's a family bonding activity, too. So what I, what I've seen with a lot of my senior execs who are usually in their 40s and 50s, they'll often do the random word exercise or the question drill or the third one, which is sending video messages to their loved ones with their children. So what happens instead of their kids watching TV all day when they get back from home, they'll actually do the random word exercise with each other. And it's a fun drill that improves the bonding and they give each other feedback and it's a lot of fun. So yes, I do believe that the communication tips you'll learn often multiply throughout the other areas of your life. Okay, excellent. Well, Brendan, how can listeners that need your help
2: get access to your uh, get access to you and your training? Where can they go?
0: Yeah, for sure, Richard. So there's two ways to keep in touch. The first one is the Master Talk YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and type Master Talk, and you'll have access to hundreds of free videos on how to communicate ideas. And the second way to keep in touch is definitely attending one of my free communication workshops that I do over Zoom. These are live free trainings that I just do for the community every two weeks. Eight-year-olds come to that call. CEOs of big startups come to that call. So if you want to jump on that, that's rockstarcommunicator.com. Very good. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Likewise,
2: Richard. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in
1: the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.